Hi, this is Udo Dirkschneider, the singer of Udo, and you listen to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, Scott here. Richie. And uh, welcoming you to another episode of Focus on Metal. And uh, this week, a special guest that I know that uh, Richie, for one, is uh, probably impatiently been waiting uh, forever to get on the show. Yeah, definitely. Dan, <laughs> Danny Bowes from Thunder. Yeah. Um, we've had Harry on before. Yep. And uh, I think that was around the time the All You Can Eat um, box set came out. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And... Um, I've been a big fan of Thunder for many years, and I've always wanted to talk to uh, to Danny or to Luke or really anyone in the band. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, we got to talk to Harry before, so I hit. I I knew their live album stage was 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 coming out, and um, I hit up. Uh, I hit him up through the website, and they scheduled an interview with uh, with mm. Danny, and he was very good to talk to, very chatty. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Which, which he admitted himself in the <laughs> interview. And um, yeah, it was great to finally talk to him. Um, a band I've liked since Backstreet Symphony and Jesus, what was that, 1990, I think. Yeah, they came up, They came from the band Terraplane, which they were more of a, how would I describe it? More poppy. Okay, yeah. And then um, they formed Thunder and... They got Andy Taylor from Duran Duran okay. to uh, produce their first album, and it was just this big blues rock, bad company sounding, brilliant re- record. Yeah, and um, Kerrang loved them. Yeah, all the English press loved them. Uh, they never broke it here. No, they really didn't. They had like the the pretty much the one song that was big over here, and that was that was pretty much it. Which is kind of weird to have such a big split between how big they are in Europe and how not big they are here in the States. Yeah, I think um, they were probably a couple of years too late. I think if they had to come out in 86, 87, and they had a couple of albums under their belt, they might have uh, done better. Maybe. Because you're coming out in 1990. Yeah. You've got the grunge stuff is 91. Yeah, so true, true. There's yeah. not much time there to make an impact before... You're in Shitsville, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, they've they've re- they've released the albums more or less since 1990. They took a break there for a while. Yep. And then they came back with Wonder Years. It was phenomenal a few years ago. And then the, the last album, Rip It Up, is brilliant as well. Right. And um, they're doing really, really well in England. Yeah, I'm it's. Really, in, I mean, it's interesting. And you talk a little bit, to, you know, to uh, to them about it too. Is just the whole. You know how they opted to manage uh, the band as well, which has, you know, obviously been working out pretty damn well for them. Yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, you know, a little bit different, I think. And I think I don't know when you think about it, it might be one of the first bands around who decided to head that way. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting that they seem to delegate pretty well in the band. Like Danny's manages, Luke writes all the songs. Right. None of them seem to step on each other's toes a lot. Yeah. Like that. Da- like Danny just says to Luke, you write, you're great at writing songs and I'm good at managing the band and yeah, everything seems yeah. to work. Yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's 
like I said, it, it seems to really work out well for them. And, you know, I think other bands that might have that kind of division like that is uh, probably wouldn't wouldn't last that long. Somehow egos would creep in, but they seem to actually just, uh, I don't know, it works. It's it's pretty good. Yeah. And they're, they headline arenas now in England when they play. Which yeah. Which is incredible for a band that's self-managed, that they can get to that level with that sort of music now. Yeah. Yeah. Like so long after their first, you know, because everyone would have thought, right, first album was big, second album, Laughing on Judgment Day was big. You're in Donington. Yeah. And then you come back and you're probably going to be like, yeah, yeah, you club band. <laughs> yeah. And I think they played, I think they, uh, they played Wembley Arena. Well, I think they have that sound that is, you know, it's, it's, uh, people like the, the melodicism and I think they just have that, the right sound for right now when you have a lot of other bands over in Europe that, uh, you know, bands like Royal Blood and stuff that have that kind of same sensibility. So it might be, you know, kind of the the, the right time for them to to uh, become big again. Yeah. Well, yeah, I suppose. I, I don't know what sort of an impact they're going to have abroad. It was nice to see him play the Monsters of Rock Cruise. We talked a little bit about that. But um, as far as making it in the States now, that's I think that's well and gone. It'd be great for him to come back here. Yeah. If they played here. I'd, I've never seen them live. Yeah. And um, they're they're very very high on my bucket list. But um, will they make it back here? I think I'd be a little bit surprised if um, they yeah, did. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I think you know, Monsters of Rock is kind of a unique thing, and it probably was worth their while to do that. But I don't know if they'd be able to actually sustain a tour here. Mm. Well, uh, if Black Star Riders can go out with Priest and Saxon, they can go out on a package like that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, that might work for them. Yeah. Um, but their bread and butter is abroad. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't know what else Danny... Do, I know Danny used to be uh, he used to be a promoter as well, so maybe he still has his fingers in that pie. Uh-huh. Luke used to have a band called Union. I don't know whether he still does anything with that. Yeah. And um, I know the other guys play with various different bands, like Harry's and Snake Charmer, and he right. was in... He did play with Magnum. He's not on the new album, but... Like, these guys are always really, really busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting idea, though, too, you know, the package gig. and, and uh, Yeah, I don't know who exactly they'd, they'd go out with, but, yeah, that might be something to, to mm. do, yeah. White snake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I thought that, uh, you know, a, a good get for you, and, uh, again, you know, great interview. And you're right. I mean, he, he, was, uh, he was very chatty, very open, very honest. Obviously excited about the live album coming out as well, which is which is cool. So that was uh Yeah. They seem to be um they seem to be putting out something nearly every year. Yeah. And I like that because you know, studio album and then they had All You Can Eat, which had the documentary on it and some stuff that they recorded in one one take in the studio. Then then they brought out Rip It Up, now they've got the live album. I think for any band now, you you can hang around you got there's so much competition out there yeah. that you got to get stuff out reasonably quickly to keep people's interest in the band. Right, right, yeah. All right. Well, what do you say we uh, play a little sample off of the uh, the brand new Thunder live album, and uh, we'll go from there and roll right into uh, your talk with Danny Bose. Excellent. Awesome. Come in. Yeah. You're being filmed, by the way. Ha-ha. 
Danny? Yeah. Hi, Danny. It's Richie here from Focus on Metal, here for an interview. How are you, Richie? I'm good. Um, I'm just outside of Boston in the US. We got about a foot of snow last night. Wow. Yeah. I know you got hammered. Was it last week? But not like that. <laughs> yeah. So, what's the worst weather conditions you've ever done a show in? I think it was very uh, snowy. Let me think back. Probably about six or seven years ago, I did um, two tours. Uh, one in 2012 and one in 2013 with Ben the guitar player, keyboard player from Thunder. We did a two-man show. This is when Thunder was, uh, shall we say, taking a rest. Mm-hmm. And uh, we 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 had some very foul weather in uh, January when we did the tour, and we had to beat our way through some, um, some fairly deep snow uh, in Wales, if, if I remember, to get to a Cardiff show. And it was, um, you know, I've got a four-by-four. You know, I'm fairly um, practical. Shove a, I shove a spade in the back of the vehicle and, and, off, and a big lump of carpet and off we go. You know? <laughs> well, what about what about being on stage and like like heavy rain or anything like that? Has that ever bothered you at all? Like where you've had to literally say, "Look, we might we might have to come off stage here. It's not safe." To be honest, we've done shows like that where the weather has been, you know, coming in like horizontally, you know, rain onto the stage and we've done stuff like that. But to be honest, you know, we've always kind of gritted our teeth and got on with it. We've always worked on the assumption that the guys who are calling the shots on the shows, like the organizers and the guys who are supposedly involved, of, involved, you know, and, and responsible for health and safety, you know, they'll pull the plug when they feel it's re- required. Okay. We just keep going until someone pulls us off, you know. Okay. And so far... Nobody has, so maybe the weather wasn't that bad, or maybe they were hoping we would get electrocuted. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, now, you were over here last month. Um, you finally got over to the U.S., and you, you did the Monsters of Rock cruise. What, what was your experience of that like? Was that a great time for you? It was a very interesting experience. Uh, I think we'd never done a cruise before. Um, so the concept was a bit of a weird one. Uh, but to be honest, once you get on a stage in front of an audience, the fact that the boats move in and the boats rock in, we had one show where it was quite rough and the audience was moving about, not necessarily uh, voluntarily during the show. And some of our equipment was moving about during the show, which was quite fun. But I mean, apart from that, you know, once you're in stage in front of an audience, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know, it's, it's business as usual. You just get on and, you know, you got a job to do, and you got to you got to make sure they go go away happy. Yeah, but did you stay on the boat for a few days, or were you literally just on the boat, did the show, and then got off at the next dock? No, no, no. We got on on Sunday morning, and we were there until the Friday following Friday when they kicked everybody off. Yeah, we were there. That was it. We were in the Caribbean. Yeah, we were from Miami, went out to um, where did we go? We went to uh, somewhere in the Bahamas, and then we went to somewhere in. Um, where it was now god it seems like a long time ago it's been busy um <laughs> but great i mean it was it was it was two there were two islands both private islands oh haiti was the second one there you go it was just okay. off the coast of haiti and then we uh got off twice just spent the day laying on the beach got back on played a show got drunk you know yeah pretty hard 
<laughs> was was now was that the first time you'd ever played in the states with Thunder? No, 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 no. We played in the states um, very few times over the years, but um, we have played. I think. I think the first time we played, we were supposed to go out there in 1991 with uh, David Lee Roth and Cinderella. Um, our first album had been released on Capitol Records and it had been re-released on Geffen later on that year. And um, because we kind of fell out of favor with uh, with Capitol, the guy who took over hated rock music. So... He must have just woke up every day hating his life because he had so many rock bands on his label. <laughs> but, um, you know, he was in charge and slowly but surely all the rock bands disappeared. We realized we had a problem and um, started looking around. And eventually when we did, I think it was Donington. Yeah, it was Donington in 1990, The Monsters of Rock. We did it with uh, Whitesnake and Aerosmith and both of those bands were big fans. We'd played with them in the run-up. And um, their A&R man, John Kolodna, he was on the bus with Aerosmith on the way in and he heard us on the radio because in those days it was carried live on the radio. And he uh, he made some kind of positive comment about the band sounding good and the Aerosmith guy said, this is the band we've been telling you about. You should sign them. So we did that Donington show and two days later we got a phone call, jumped on a plane and went to LA. And we signed a deal with Geffen did the deal with Geffen, and then they re-released our first album, Backstreet Symphony, on Geffen. And uh, the first song, Dirty Love, went, at the time, number one dial TV for like six weeks, and we sold like a quarter of a million albums, and then they been in the country. So it was a bit of a strange experience. But So then we were very excited, and we went over to LA a few times, and we did a couple of showcases, and uh, they were really good. Loads of press and media there, they were amazing. Radio guys, and everybody, everything was very positive. And then, get to 91 and we're supposed to do the shows with David Lee Roth and, and Cinderella and um, unfortunately Kurt Cobain wrote a couple of tunes and grunge happened <laughs> and it suddenly changed everything overnight you know and uh, you know I've said it before you know he ruined my career in America and if I ever said, see the guy I'll kill him <laughs> but you know just kind of the way it worked out you know our timing was, was bad and uh, and that's what happened but um, so we never got to go the tour folded we never got to play there so just out of sheer frustration, we arranged a bunch of shows in Canada and we went there instead. I think that was September 91. And once we'd finished those shows, we had a week to kill before we did a show for a rock magazine out there. They'd asked us to do it ages before, so we had we, we had to do it. That was in LA. And so with a week to kill, we asked our agent to arrange some club shows, just anything he could get where he thought there might be an audience that just went anyway, didn't need to buy a ticket for us. And um, he put us into a place in Baltimore, place in Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went over to the other other side and we played in San Diego, Orange County, um, and then L.A. And um, the, uh, the reaction from the audience was ridiculous. We had the whole audience in the dressing room every night saying, who are you guys, where can I buy your record? And we were just sitting there thinking, this is really ironic that we had a great big tour and this could have been amazing and yet that tour is dead and here we are playing clubs and everybody loves us. You know, the irony of the situation didn't escape us, let's put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that was it. We never got to play again. We tried and tried and tried with Geffen, but by then the fix was in with um, 
with the whole situation with grunge and, you know, pretty much overnight radio stations stopped playing bands like us and not just us, but loads of bands. And, you know, it just kind of ended really. We tried very hard with Geffen, but it came to an end. We, we'd made another two albums and tried and tried backwards and forwards with demos, trying to get them all excited. But, you know, by then they cared, they cared about Nirvana and Nirvana only. Yeah. And what, what was the closest you got to coming back to the U.S.? Like, or was it just always dead in the water anyway? We never got anything going on. I mean, I spoke to labels galore after that, and uh, nobody was interested. Uh, we had managers who spoke to labels galore. It never happened. And then suddenly, once the internet came about, and we were running our own record label, so you're talking, you know, 15, you know, 16 years later. You know, we'd been through the mill. We'd been through the machine. You know, we kind of all but given up on on America. And then, and then we started running our own record label, reaching out to fans directly via the internet. And um, we had inquiries from record labels, and I would, you know, have fairly uh, robust conversations with them, asking them conversations about uh, questions about what they would do. But I never really got a feel that anybody really wanted to go for it, and that or they had the resources to really try. And I thought. You know, I'd rather do nothing than make a mistake. So it, we just kind of sat back in it and waited. Um, we got offered a chance to play a tour. Another ironic situation. I think it was with Judas Priest. We decided by 2008 we'd kind of had enough. Running our own record label was really hard. And we just kind of had enough. I mean, we were doing a great job and we were selling plenty of records, but it was just too hard. And, you know, I felt like I was going to have a nervous breakdown or a heart attack, or both. You know, so we, I just had to stop. So we needed to take a few years off, and um, I kind of stepped away, and then the band stepped away. And just as we decided, we put a final run of shows together, just to you know announce that we were breaking up and we'd split, and we tell everybody we were going, we were going to play one final tour. Just as we got that tour going, I, I get a phone call out of the blue from somebody in America who says they want us to tour with Judas Priest, a very big American tour. <laughs> well, we'd already decided that we'd stopped and we'd already announced that we were stopping so we knew we couldn't go back on our word otherwise our fans would just hate yeah. us yeah now, how, so we had to step away but once again another ironic situation yeah now how surprising was it for you that you finally got to play in Australia last year did you did you always think that that was, that was just one thing that was never going to happen well we tried tried and failed loads and loads of times I mean you know EMI in Australia was a big label and you know we were on EMI for six years and you know we were convinced that sooner or later they would wake up you know and we would get a chance to play there but it just never came about and every time we thought we might get a chance it looked good it looked promising and then the rug would be pulled away at the last minute so we'd all but given up you're absolutely right we'd all but given up on it happening and then out of the blue, we changed our agent in the UK, and he said, how many times have you played Australia? When was the last time? And I said, we've never played there. And his jaw hit the desk. And he said, you are kidding me. And I said, I'm not. And if you could make it make it happen, the band will come around here, and they will do things to you. Nice things. You know? <laughs> so he... Um, so he uh, he arranged it. He spoke to his guy. His guy put it together. We went out there and played the shows, and it was... It was a fairly hefty schedule. I mean, we kind of arrived and had a day off, and then we played the shows back to back, and we had a day off in the middle, and then we flew home. Four days later, we started a UK tour. So we left looking like middle-aged men, and we came home looking like Methuselah. I mean, it was a, <laughs> it was a, it, it was a, it was a really punishing schedule, but we didn't care. When I put it to the band, I said, you know, it's heavy duty. 
Yeah. Do you want to do it? And they said, it's Australia. Of course we want to do it. I said, but there's only four days between that and the UK tour. You know, you're not getting any younger. You really want to do this? And they said, yep, we'll sleep when we did. And we did. Yeah. <laughs> Danny, that, that, flight, that flight for you must have been a killer on your vocals, though, because it's so long. No, to be honest with you, I just sort of worked on the assumption that I would uh, just take plenty of water, take it easy, sleep as much as possible. Talk as little as possible, which for me is very difficult. You might have gathered by now. I do like a chat. That's all right. And it was, um, you know, it was, uh, it was fine. To be honest, we had a day off. We got there. We spent the next day by the sea, you know. And I, um, I just, uh, I didn't have any trouble at all. I, I sailed through the shows actually. Probably okay. tired most of the time. Didn't really know whether I wanted a shit or a haircut, but <laughs> got through the gigs. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about the stage album, the live album that that's coming out in a couple of weeks. Um, you recorded that in yeah. March last year. How, how come it's taken a year for it to come yeah. out? That's a very good question. I wish I knew the answer. <laughs> um, all I can tell you is, all I can tell you is, um, we spent the best part of a year planning the show, choosing the right people to work with, director, editor, just making it, making sure it was the right gig, and you know, because we 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 agreed with our label that we would only record and we only film one show. It was a very expensive filming exercise you know a lot of cameras a lot of bodies a lot of kit you know and it was it was going to be an expensive exercise and when when i agreed it with the label the first thing they said was record the london gig and i said i don't want to record the london gig they said why i said because it's, it won't be the best show on the tour london will be amazing but it won't be the best show on the tour so they said which one will be and i said it will be cardiff and purely simply because the last time we were there in 2013, we played a show with Journey and White Snake. And when we got off, the, well, sorry, we finished the first song. The audience reaction was ridiculous. It was like someone else had walked on. I kept looking behind, thinking David Coverdale was peeking out behind a curtain. <laughs> but it, it wasn't there. The audience was amazing, and um, and they sang everything, and they knew all the words, and. Everybody had a Thunder T-shirt on, and we just couldn't believe it. It had been years since we'd been in Cardiff, so. You know, we were very genuinely, positively surprised. So, and it stuck with us, you know. And to be honest, at the time that we did that show with Journey on Whitesnake, we hadn't made an album for five years. Five years. And we, we had no intention of making an album. But it was that show and the rest of the shows on that tour that really stuck in our minds. And at the end of it, I remember Luke, a guitar player in the band, he writes the tunes. It's really down to him as to whether or not we're going to be making a record. Yeah. He had another band prior to, and you know he was doing other things, and it really wasn't my place having pulled the rug out from all of them to tell them that we should come back and make another record. But we did the tour, got to the end of the tour, and he said to me, you know something, I think we should make another album. I said, why? He said, I don't know whether we'll get a better opportunity than this. These people have been amazing on this tour. We have to do this. There's clearly a lot of love. Let's go. So that was it, and they were the reason. So it's all down to Cardiff. You know, They're the reason we came back. So... You know, we felt somehow it was right and fitting that we should do it in, in Cardiff. And then having sort of arranged it and put the show together, the show was amazing on the night, really, really good. And obviously, we made the right choice in picking that show because it was great. But then, of course, we set about getting the, uh, the editing done and the mixing done. And then we had to tweak stuff and we had to keep tweaking stuff. And the audio didn't sound quite right. And then we had to get someone else to mix it. And in the end, Chris, our bass player, he mixed it because we just couldn't find anyone else to mix the audio in a way that made it sound like it was there. So, you know, 
so it just it all just took forever to do it. And then by the time we'd done that, then we had a set about making the artwork and the record label wanted a load of formats. And because they wanted a load of formats, it meant that we had to really get into the artwork. And and we wanted a different version with different covers. And, you know, we just made it really hard for ourselves. You know, Christ knows why. I thought we'd have learned something over, after all these years. But <laughs> no, we just really... I think what it is, I think we're just so desperate. We know we've got such a sort of rabid, voracious fan club. Yeah. Our fans want everything we do, and they want it. And we want to make sure that what we give them is absolutely brilliant. So sometimes what you do is you end up making a rod for your back because of that. And I think, you know, it gives you a problem, but I think it's a good problem to have, and I think you're doing it for all the right reasons. So at the end of the day, you know, when you deliver it, you can, you know, put your hand on your heart and you can say, go on in fans, I dare you. I dare you not to love this, you know? Yeah. No, and it's, you, know, you, you know, there's a lot of competition for their money nowadays, you know? I think, I think we, we're very conscious of the fact that, you know, not everybody's got loads of money. And if you're asking them to spend 30, 40 quid, maybe on something that's like a premium box thing, you want to make sure the value's there. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's why it took so long. We just wanted to make sure it was great. Yeah, and you're you're probably recording every show on the tour, and there's probably the temptation there where you might make a mistake at the Cardiff show, and you and you think to yourself, "Oh, I did it better two nights later. I'll just put that piece in." In was that a temptation at all, or did you just say, "Fuck it, I'm just going to leave it as it is"? No, 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 no. We don't do that. We've never done that. Our live albums are very much what you would call warts and all. Okay. We like them to be. We like them to sound like you were there, and if you were there. You know, if there's a mistake, you heard it. Did you hear it and did you notice it? Maybe, maybe not. You know, and it will be the same when you listen to the thing afterwards. You know, we're not, we've never been precious. We've never been precious about things sounding perfect. We've only ever wanted them to sound real. You know, a, a true representation of what it was like on the night. And let's face it, nowadays, you know, everybody's got a phone. Everybody's recording the shows all the time. All this stuff jumps up on YouTube and Facebook. You know, the moment you've done it. So if you then follow those films up however many months later, yes, okay, you can argue that people have forgotten and, you know, those videos have long since gone, gone by the by. But I still think that, you know, it's very easy for a fan to go through and find those things and, and, and say, hang on a minute, this is supposed to be a live album. It doesn't sound like that on YouTube nine months ago. So why does it sound like it now on the album? You know, I think it's got to be, I think you've got to be the, do the right thing. I think you've got to be honest. I think you've got to be transparent. And if you're not good, live and you shouldn't release anything in the first place <laughs> yeah now, one of the things i love about the album um you I, and I'm, I'm this goes in general about any band that i go and see i want them to play the new newer material and you have a lot of the newer material on this which is great <laughs> Spirit 
I think we did that. We've always done that. With the Wonder Days album, we played six songs off of that album when we did that tour. And I think we did the same thing with this album. It might have been seven um, on, on, the, uh, on the Rip It Up album. I think you make a new album, you're really pleased with it. You want to play it. You know, you want people to know about it. You're there to sell a record. You're promoting a record. But, you know, you always, when you've been around as long as we have, you are walking a fine line because there are an element of the audience who will always want to hear all the songs they know. And they may or may not have bought the new album because maybe they want to hear a few songs first, you know, to convince themselves that it is as good as they want it to be. So, you know, you, you're kind of walking a fine line as to how much of the new re- records you play versus the old ones and the new and the old favourites. But we've always been much more comfortable with the idea of playing good chunks of the new record because we're proud of it. If we're proud of it, then why not play it? Um, because we have a tradition of doing it, I think our audience understands it, they accept it, and to an, ex- to an ex- uh, extent, I think they expect it. Mm-hmm. So it's never been an issue for us to do that. Um, uh, you know, yeah, I think, I think it has, um, I think for us it feels normal. You know, I can understand why other people wouldn't do it. I think but, it goes back. For us, it feels very normal. I think it goes back, Danny, to the relationship you have with the fans. Like you're ver- you're pretty approachable as a band. You put on very good VIP packages and all that. You've always had a really close relationship with them. So they know the newer material. They're not going to just go and you know they're going to want to hear the first couple of songs from the first two records. And then if you start playing a load of new stuff, they're going to just say, "I don't know any of this. I'm out of here." Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that comes back to what we said earlier about the audience being, you know, ever hungry. You know, the moment we, I'll be honest with you, the moment we released the Rip It Up album, within a month, people were saying, when's, it, when's there going to be a new album? <laughs> and you think to yourself, give us a chance. You know, <laughs> we spent a year putting this one together. You know, it's a kind of, it does make you wonder. They have no concept, and nor should they. You know, they have no concept and, uh, about how long it takes you to put it together. I mean, you spent, you know, God knows how many months writing the thing, and then we had to go demo the thing, and then we had to mix it and fret and make sure that it's good, and then we, you know, do the mastering, and then we've got to get a cover together. You know, the, all these things take time, and it always takes twice as long as you think it's going to take. You know, even in your... Um, you know, even in your most kind of rosiest dreams, you know, it never comes out the way you'd like it to. So, you, you, and then once you've done that, then you've got to sort of build in the magazine lead times and can you get the reviews and how long is it going to take you to make sure that you can get it shipped out to where it needs to get to. There's a whole bunch of really boring crap that you have to go through to bring a record to market, especially if you want to do it properly and make sure that everybody's going to receive it in the best way possible. And let's face it, nowadays, it's very, you know, there's a lot of competition. And you want to make sure you do the best you can by the record and also by the fans. You want the fans to be very excited about it when they get it. And I think if they are ever hungry, then what we always try to do is to give them the album a couple of weeks before the tour to give them a chance to really, you know, soak up the record. And I always say, just make sure you learn the words, because if you learn the words, you're going to, you're going to be doing it better than me because I can never remember the bloody words. So, you know, if, you know, if, if I can get, if someone in the audience is singing the words, then it gives me half a chance, and I can read their lips. I just think it's, uh, it's much better if everybody knows the tunes. Otherwise, what you get is this horrible kind of up and down motion where the audience, you know, is going bonkers for the songs they know, and then they're completely silent for the ones they don't. And, you know, we really feel that on the stage. Okay. Okay. I just want to ask you a couple of questions, Danny, about, about managing the band. Um, 
mm-hmm. when you got into management, how, how steep a learning curve was it for you? Well, I'd been kind of learning for years and years and years. Um, when I, I mean, yeah, my my dad was a retailer. You know, he had he had, he had businesses, and um, so I had it in my blood to an extent. You know, the whole idea of you know buy and sell, you know, buy cheap, sell dear, service looking after the customer, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And, and from the moment I got into a band, I kind of applied all that stuff. You know, and I'd tell my dad what we were doing and he would say, make sure you do this, make sure you do that. He didn't know about the business. He didn't know how the music business worked. But there's a whole bunch of kind of truisms that take place. So I was always that way inclined. I never really had any inclination to write songs. I mean, you know, I'll probably die a pauper. But I never really had any inclination to write songs. Um, luckily for me, Luke did. He lived it. He was obsessed with how records got made and, how, and, the, and the craft of songwriting. So we kind of gravitated towards the bits that we were interested in. So the moment there was a record deal, and it took forever to get a record deal, but the moment we got our first record deal, I would spend so much of my time sitting with the record label or sitting with the lawyer or sitting with the manager or the tour manager or the, you know, the merchandise guy or the publisher, and I'd just be soaking up everything that these guys were talking about. And so, for me, it was amazingly interesting. And because of that, I kind of, I, you know, it's inevitable that you're going to learn some stuff. And it gives you a point of view, and it makes you a pain in the ass for everyone around you. Immediately. Because the moment you start asking them questions, they're thinking, I wish I hadn't have told him that, because now he's going to beat me with it. <laughs> and it's kind of the way it worked. And, by this and all through this period, Luke is getting better and better and better at making records and writing songs and understanding how to make records and produce records and and so in the end we ended up with this kind of team really, you know. So I mean, by the time I came to manage the band, we'd had I don't know three or four managers, and by the time we got to that stage, I just said to the band, you know, the last manager was only really doing what I was telling her to do. So why don't we just let me do it? And we could save ourselves a whole bunch of money and save me a load of time. And uh, in the end, you know, they, initially I think they found it quite a, a weird concept. But after a little while, they got their heads around it, and we started doing it. And I've been managing the band ever since. Yeah, now it, years and years and years. I mean, it feels like Dickens was writing his novels when I started doing it. <laughs> now you have to put on the manager's hat sometimes, and make, you're going to make a decision that's going to probably piss the rest of the band off. And you're great mates with them. Is that difficult to do? Mm. Not really. I don't think I don't have any. Um, I don't have any trouble making the difficult decisions, and I, and the reason reason is because, as a as you said, we're great mates, and we really are. We are truly very good friends. When we're together, we spend almost all of our time laughing, and that is the God's honest truth. Very few occasions when we disagree about anything at all. What I can rely on, and I do rely on constantly is that if I lay out the facts before them, and I always give them my recommendation, and I give them the alternative recommendation, and I give them the alternative, alternative recommendation, that I know that if I lay it all out and I say, we could go this way, this way, or this way, but I think the first one is the way to go, and here's why. If I lay that all out and give them cold logic, more often than not, nine times out of ten, they'll agree with me. So it's not, this is an easy band to manage. You know, it's not an easy thing to do, but mm-hmm. it's, but they're easy people to manage because they're very reasonable people. 
We know each other very well. We all have a vested interest in doing it because we're all in it together. And I think that they're um, they're easy people to manage. And um, but don't tell them I told you that. <laughs> now, is there any decision that a previous manager made, and you have the experience of managing now for years, and you still scratch your head and you can't figure out the logic of how they came to that decision? Yes, I can. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a good few of those, actually. There's a few of those, and I can remember, weirdly, there was one particular manager who made a recommendation. I won't go into it, and I won't name him, and I won't get into the details of what we did, because I think it would be dull and inappropriate. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I can remember at the time, all the hair stood up on the back of my neck, and I thought, oh, what on earth are you suggesting that for? In what universe is that a good idea? And I can remember at the time having a conversation with the band. And that was one of those moments where you suddenly thought, that's it. The die is cast. This manager isn't going to last much longer. Because if that's what he thinks is a good idea, then what else is going wrong? And that was, that was where, you know, because at the end of the day, a band is responsible. You know, you employ a manager to look after you and to, and to represent your best interests. But you can't be there every day with them, all day, every day. So you have to believe in what they say and you have to trust in their judgment. The problem is, is there comes a moment where they they give you a recommendation which you think makes absolutely no sense whatsoever and you cannot understand how they've got to it. Mm-hmm. It's inevitable that, that, you know, doubt creeps in. And then unfortunately, once the doubt creeps in, then everything seems to serve that. Yeah. And it all seems to make it worse. And there's your problem. And it's this confidence, you know. It's the same thing. It could be a football team. It could be anything, you know. Yeah. You've heard it before, you know, managers, lots of dressing room. You know, I've heard it God knows how many times. I'm an avid football fan, you know, and I'm constantly reading the back pages of the, of the newspapers. And, you know, you, you hear the, you, you see the words in the paper and you, you think to yourself, aha, manager's lost the dressing room. Wonder how long he'll last. And then, you know, next week he's gone. Yeah. True. Arsene Wenger, by the looks it's of it. It's the same thing. There you go. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's made a he's made a good fist of it for a long time, but clearly he's he's lost it now because the, the, this team will not play for him. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's what, it is, what it is. Yeah, I want to ask you, Danny, about Marillion in the nine. I think it was in the late nineties. They started getting the fans to fund their albums. Were you paying very close attention yeah. to that when they started doing it? Yeah, absolutely, we were. Yeah, our then bass player, oh no, he's our bass player still, what I'm talking about, our bass player, his then wife, that's what I meant, because he's no longer married to her, she was a huge Marillion fan. And she used to basically nag him about what Marillion were doing, and he would nag me about what Marillion were doing, and I'll make no bones of it. We used to look and see what they did, and I would cherry-pick the things that they did, and I would see if I could find a way to apply them to what we did. But we didn't cherry, we didn't do everything they did, because I didn't agree with everything that they did. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were certain elements of the way they went about it. And I think they were trailblazers in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Did Did you think it would succeed the way it has? Yes, absolutely. I think if you've got a great relationship with your fans and providing what you're, what you're um, asking them to do is honest and it's real and the quality is there and you deliver it, then I see no reason at all why it wouldn't, wouldn't work. Yeah. Now, one of the things they do is um, they go away now and they have weekends away in like holiday camps with the fans. Is that something that yeah. you'd like to do with Thunder? 
Well, we looked at doing it. We looked at doing it. We actually looked into it and we actually planned one out. We costed it. We had meetings, but we ended up not doing it. And we abandoned the idea in the end because we realized that for us to do it, it would be pretty much the only thing we could do that year if we did it. You know, the costs are such that you would need to have an enormous number of people and you would need to be selling it for a long period of time. And it would kind of interfere with everything else that you did. And in the end, we came to the conclusion that if we did that and only that, we'd all die of boredom the rest of the year. <laughs> so the easiest thing for us to do would be to kind of just stick with what we do and play sporadically, you know, work through the thing make the album, release the album, do a tour, pick some festivals, play them, then maybe do another tour or maybe some one-off shows after that, go to Japan, go to Australia, you know, maybe get a chance to jump on a boat and play a cruise, you know, for us. What we like is kind of a little little bit and often rather than just one big thing at the end of the year. Yeah, yeah. Now, before I leave you go, Danny, I have to ask you about the Kerrang story that you're, that ran in the 90s about Coverdale trying to take Luke Morley away. <laughs> now, I'll be honest yeah. with you. I thought that was serious. <laughs> right. A lot of people did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a lot of people did, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I can hold my hand up and say that it was a... It was a situation that we made the most of. Let's put it that way. Um, there was an inquiry. Luke said he was too busy. I got the wrong end of the stick, got upset. He explained it. I understood it. And then the press person from EMI, we were with at the time, she was there, she heard about it. She said, we can make something of this. I said, well, why do we need to do that? You know, we don't need to air our dirty Washington public. And she said, no, no, I think we should. You know, it'd be great. We've got this and that coming up. We should get into it. So she persuaded me. We did it. And it just turned into a kind of a monster hoax you know, that just got out of control. But um, we never felt massively comfortable with the idea, and I've made my peace with the journalist subsequently. <laughs> uh, you know, I sat him down and bought him a pint and said, you know, I can tell you now, you know, it was all a bit of a ruse. And he said, you know something, I appreciate you telling me, you bastard. Did he not re Did he not realize that at all at the time? No, I think he, I mean, I was very convincing, I must say. I mean, I think, you know, had there been cameras there, I think I might have won an award. <laughs> but I think it was, um, I think a lot of the time, you know, if you can tell somebody something that they really want to hear, they believe it. And I think he probably really got a lot out of writing the thing and being the guy who wrote the thing and, you know, you know, it's like I mean, everybody brings something to something. So it, it was, it just, it was just a kind of a, a little scrabble that got out of hand and turned into a big thing, and it didn't really need to be one. And then once we'd done it, we thought, you know, well, did it work? Probably. Do we feel better? Probably not. You know. Yeah. Did um, did Coverdale ever get wind? Things, you know, it, it, did did Coverdale ever get wind of it? I don't know. I've got no idea. I don't think he gave a shit to be honest with you. <laughs> Go on then. You know, he knows he made the inquiry. He asked Luke if he was interested, and Luke said, no, he couldn't do it. It was just too busy. Yeah. So that was it. You know, so I mean, the fact that I might get irate about it and all the rest of it, he just probably thought, you know, that Danny's a bit of a twit, you know. But, you know, yeah. I've met David Coverdale loads of times over the years, and he's always been lovely to me. So, you know, I'm not, you know, not going to say anything bad about him. You know, yeah. he's, uh, he's, and he's never, never done anything bad to me. So, you know, thoroughly charming. Last time I met him, he gave me a, 
we had a drink of some very, very expensive scotch. I think he said it was like a thousand pounds a bottle. I said, wow. Are you mean? He said, I didn't buy it. Promo boy. <laughs> <laughs> Put it on the rider. <laughs> but final, final, yeah, quite, maybe, yeah. Yeah, final question, that, that, Danny. How close did you come from not playing that show in Donington when you were sick? Very close. It was very, very close. I mean, you know, you, you must know the story if you ask the question. I mean, yeah. ultimately, I had absolutely no idea if I was going to be able to sing. None. Because I hadn't sung since I'd been to see the doctor. I mean, the air conditioning was on the bus. New driver. I didn't know. Talking all the way to the gig. This is probably one of four warm-up shows that week. Three, maybe. I forget now. It was a long time ago. But I remember the first warm-up show, I did the gig and my voice just went halfway through the show and I was thinking, this is weird. Never never experienced this before. Just pushed it harder. My problem is I can sing twice as loud as is good for me. So I did. And as a result, you know, I kind of wrecked my voice and then subsequently went to do the show the next day. The voice was gone. Had nothing. Um... We did a warm-up. We were opening for Poison. And um, I'll never forget it. You know, I had nothing all the way through the show. I know, you know, it's nothing worse than being a singer and not being able to sing. You know, I mean, why are you there for otherwise? You know? Mm -hmm. And it was awful. I was in tears. The audience was in tears. I said to our tour manager afterwards, I need you to get me to see somebody. And he drove me back to London that night. And um, next day I was in Harley Street. Saw a Harley Street doctor. He said, bend over. (laughs) Stuck a needle. Looked like something you might give a horse straight into my behind. Ooh. And um, he said, go away, don't speak. So I said, what about singing? He said, wait till today. So I said, well, that's three days. We're supposed to be sound checking the day before. Because in those days you could. There was an empty field and you stood in there and you played. But he said, um, no, not until the day. If you, sing the, if you sing before, you won't have anything on the day. Do nothing until the day. So I said, well, I don't know it's going to come back. He said, it will. Trust me. I'm a Harley Street doctor and I'm going to charge you a hell of a lot of money. Believe me, this is going to work. So I had to trust him. Paid the bill. Had a heart attack because it's so expensive. <laughs> Left and stayed away. And then the first time I set foot on the stage was in front of 80-odd thousand people and I had absolutely no idea if I could sing. Wow. And it was terrifying truly and if you watch the film because it's out there the film is out there first song you can see my voice change and my face change and a smile breaks onto my face just as i hit the first vaguely testing note and the next thing you know we're into the big bit the band are running around like rabbits you know i mean we were literally like dogs on heat chasing around the stage and I'm convinced it was just mostly to do with the collective release of adrenaline and the fear and realizing it was all going to be okay. And I'm absolutely sure that that was most of the reason why I had such a great show. Yeah. Yeah. Relief and adrenaline. Fantastic. Amazing. I mean, it really was the most amazing experience. I mean, and once it was finished, I remember our tour manager who was a man of great understatement. He used to tour manage the who. I came off and he chucked a towel over my shoulders and I said, that seemed to go quite well, Roger. And he said, yes, I think you probably had it away on your toes there. And that was all he said. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Danny, do you want to give out yeah, all the... Uh, amazing. Do you want to give out all the social media sites where p- 
people can get in touch with the band and see when you're going to be out on the road? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, there's no reason at all why not. Yeah, yeah. You just go to uh, Facebook and you can find th- uh, Thunder on Facebook, and then we've got a website, thunderonline.com. You know, it's just it's all up there. Oh, we're easy to find. We're very easy to find. Excellent. And the the other place you actually played, I think, for the first time last year was Ireland. Now we've been in Ireland a few times over the years. Oh, have you? Well, I've all, I've, all, times I've always years. I've always missed you then. <laughs> well, it's got to be said. I mean, there were there was a, a huge period of time where we didn't. Um, we just couldn't find a way to make it work economically. But um, last time we played last year, we did. We played there. We played shows in Dublin and Belfast, but we haven't played there for many, many years. I think probably it might have been almost twenty years. Wow, since we've been there, but. It was amazing. I mean, uh, um, Benny and I, when we did our two-man show, we played in Ireland uh, on both tours. We played in Belfast and we played in uh, Ballymena and, you know, Northern Ireland and and I think we did Dublin as well. And it was mm. great. Absolutely great every time. It was nice. really, really great. So, I mean, we had absolutely no reason not to go. Well, we, we always loved the audience. Uh, our reason was just because it's just such a pain in the ass getting there. You know, it's a day on the boat. The day, the day when you days when you do the shows, and then the day day back, you know, by the time you paid all those bills, unless you can get a reasonable fee, and there and sometimes you can't. If you can get a reasonable fee, then it might adds up. And if you can't, then you know you think you said, well, do we go here and work and work for nothing, or do we or do we go somewhere else and get paid? Okay. And we love our we love our Irish audience, of course we do, but um, you know, not enough to be skinned. Yeah, know? it is a business at the end of the day. Well, you have to make your money. Yeah. Yeah. So Danny, it's been a it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for giving me so much of your time. Thank you, sir. And um I've been a huge of fan course. of the band since Jesus nineteen ninety. I've I've interviewed Mike Fraser a few times. He's a he's a great guy. He spoke he told me a lot of thunder stories, so He's a lovely man, Michael. Very yeah. lovely man. Yeah. So have a good rest of the day and uh, it's been great talking to you, Danny. And you sir. All Thanks right, take lot. care of yourself, okay? Bye. Bye bye. <laughs>
couldn't resist playing the big hit here at the end because I figure, you know, everyone's listening for Thunder. You kind of want to hear Dirty Love, right? At least here in the States, that's the one that everyone wants to listen to. So there you go. And if uh, you want to find out more about Thunder, you can head up to thunderonline.com. Got their merch up there. Got all their latest news, tour dates, all that good stuff. And of course, you want to go and pick yourself up a copy of their brand new live one, Thunder Stage. And that's available as a vinyl. It's available as the old... uh, couple of CDs plus a DVD as well as CDs plus Blu-ray. So a couple of different versions of that. So make sure you go up and get yourself a copy of that. But anyways, that will do it for another week here at Focus on Metal. Of course, more good stuff on the way next week as uh, we have a pretty packed April already scheduled for you. But as I said, that's it for this week. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.